Hello, and welcome to the latest Fraser of Allender podcast. My name is Mary Spowage, and I'm the Deputy Director of the Institute. Today, we're talking about the Fraser of Allender quarterly economic commentary, which we produce with the support of Deloitte. I'm delighted to say that joining me today are my colleagues, Adam McGeoch and David Iser from the Institute, and also Steve Williams, who's Senior Partner for Scotland for Deloitte. This edition of the commentary discusses that the Scottish economy is at a key crossroads in its recovery from the pandemic and that the outlook is particularly uncertain. Whilst the fragile recovery is underway, the economy is still well below levels of activity that we saw prior to the crisis. On the upside, provided that the virus is contained, we could see growth continue as it has eh, over the last few months and businesses could gain confidence along with consumers. However, even in this scenario, the recovery is likely to be slow with the economy not really turning to normal until a vaccine can be rolled out at scale. However, there are many reasons to be more pessimistic. The new restrictions that we've seen in the last couple of weeks due to the surge in cases are likely to further constrain the rate of growth. Businesses who were already operating under significant stress are likely to suffer, suffer further under these new restrictions. With the scaling back of government support in the next few weeks, particularly the furlough scheme, many of the negative economic effects of the crisis are likely to escalate. And in the commentary, we, we consider a number of different scenarios for growth, including a more pessimistic scenario which considers the impact of a second significant lockdown. So we'll discuss all these in more detail in a moment. But first, coming to you, Adam. We discussed in the commentary that the economy as a whole has shown signs of recovery, albeit we're still at around 10% below um, the levels that we would see pre before the pandemic. This is obviously for the economy as a whole, what does our analysis tell us about the experience of different sectors in the economy? Hi, Mary. So, yes, yeah, so some businesses have been able to um, adapt to the new working environment, working from home. And there's also some businesses that um, where, where physical distancing is um, not necessarily an issue for them. So they've been able to operate largely as normal throughout the pandemic. But for other businesses, demand has taken quite a hit. So, this is businesses and typically tourism-facing industries um, and those that rely on face-to-face um, -face consumer interaction. In our uh, commentary, we discuss a K-shaped recovery, which essentially means that a large part of our economy, from restaurants, bars, airports and other social spending services, will take some time to recover from this crisis. On the other hand, there's large parts of the economy, um, as mentioned, that have been able to continue as normal and a recovery is already underway. And this is reflected in the data. So the latest data for July shows that accommodation and food services sector um, is still just producing around half of what it was in February, whereas financial services and real estate activities are already near their pre-crisis levels in February. Yeah, absolutely. And the different experiences of different sectors is likely to translate into um, a different experience of recovery for different parts of Scotland. What, what do you think, given the analysis we've done, the implications are for different regions of Scotland? Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, there's 
you know, an asymmetric impact on different sectors of the Scottish economy. Um, and there's within that, there's certain Scottish regions that are made up um, of sectors that have been particularly exposed by the crisis. Um, and this will play a really important role in the coming months and years ahead. So Scottish local authorities, for example, um, that are made up of industries particularly exposed, um, whether that's manufacturing or transportation and storage, um, we expect these authorities to take some time to recover in the coming months. Um, but there's also some local authorities that um, where these sectors have been severely impacted are less prevalent. And we discussed this in the commentary, particularly areas like um, Renfrewshire and Amberclyde um, have been particularly affected, whereas there's some areas in East Renfrewshire and Aberdeenshire which haven't due to their industrial makeup. And in the commentary, we lay out a number of scenarios for growth. So instead of thinking about what's happened, what might happen next, and we have one which um, considers the impact of a second lockdown, as I've already mentioned. So what are the implications for growth if, if a second significant lockdown happens? Yeah, so the, the second significant lockdown uh, scenario um, reflects the potential outcome of the economy if we were to impose further lockdown restrictions, similar to what we experienced earlier in the year. Um, so slightly more um, restricted than um, what was announced last week. Um, if there is a second significant lockdown, then we would expect the economy to take around four years to recover, meaning that the economy would not return to its pre-crisis levels until spring 2024. Thanks, Adam. And although we produce a number of scenarios in the commentary, I think on balance, um, our, our weight of expectations for the more pessimistic um, outlook at this stage, because even if a second lockdown is avoided, um, challenges around testing, onset of the winter months, um, and large-scale social distancing being here for the foreseeable future means that our economy is likely to mean, remain in this sort of limbo it's in at the moment for at least the next six months. But what happens next will depend on a lot of different things about um, the measures that are taken to protect public health and how governments um, and, and consumers and businesses respond to all of these factors. Um, but I think what is it striking about the media outlook is just how uncertain it is. And it's hard to think of a time when the range of possible outcomes has been so wide. Um, but I think um, most analysts would agree that the task of rebuilding the economy is likely to take a number of years. And in the face of this uncertainty, it can be really difficult for businesses to plan and consider their next steps. And obviously on top of the COVID pandemic um, and the associated economic lockdowns, we have the end of the Brexit transition period coming down the track at the end of December. So turning to you now, Steve, given this very difficult environment for businesses at the moment, what do you think businesses should be thinking about in order to cope in the coming months? Barry, thank you very much uh, for the invite uh, to the podcast. I mean, I think I'd start by saying uh, and reiterating what Adam's already said is that we're seeing a, a wide range of experiences, quite frankly, across uh, different companies at present. But generally, I'd say um, most companies are suffering from operational complexity at this time and also a lower demand. Uh, but there are definitely exceptions in different subsectors. The three things I would say which are important uh, for companies uh, to do, and it's based on conversations with colleagues and, and clients. I mean, one is around revenue and growth. 
clearly companies have to grow at the moment and they have to replace lost revenue. Uh, that means looking at uh, channel strat strategies, especially uh, the digital channel clearly where that's relevant. It's around reallocation of resources to make sure the resources are in the right place. Um, and it's around looking at pricing as well in this environment, uh, particularly with lower demand. There's also a second piece, which is around transforming the operations. Um, we're seeing a lot of companies look at faster decision-making uh, within their business, taking away some of the bureaucracy and becoming more agile. And we're seeing them look for agility in the supply chain as well. And it's really important that companies look in their broader ecosystem and look for opportunities for agility because things are moving so quickly and quite frankly, uh, an overused word, but uh, we do have ultimate uncertainty in terms of what might happen next week or next month. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, it's about reimagining the business. Um, so it's a, what are we here for as a company? Um, how do we access new customers? Um, what kind of products are saleable, if you like, or saleable in this environment? And what kind of capabilities do we require to deliver those? So what sort of technology do we need? Uh, what kind of people do we need in our business? And what capabilities generally are going to make us successful? And as part of that, I think we are going to see restructuring. So that's not only about um, selling off parts of the business, which perhaps uh, are no longer relevant to this reimagined business, but also M&A activity. And we're starting to see the start, I think, of, of acquisitions. Uh, as businesses do reimagine what they're all about. Yes, and, and resilience is not surprisingly something that we're hearing a lot about at the moment. And you discussed that in the foreword to the commentary as well, Steve. So what do you think leadership teams should be considering as they look to strengthen their organization's resilience in these difficult times? I, I think to date, uh, companies have predictably in lots of ways uh, treated this as a crisis um, and it had to be a crisis response um, with various uh, leadership team meetings and uh, all the framework you'd expect to be implemented. Some of that's been quite tactical uh, in nature. And what we're seeing next is really uh, looking proactively to say, well, how can we actually stop bad things happening? But how can we also make good things happen in this environment as well? And to us, that's around financial resilience. So clearly uh, understanding the liquidity and the capital position of the business and its profitability and making that as resilient as possible. Operationally resilient. So do we have the right technology in place, the right people in place to make sure we can absorb shocks, if you like, which are inevitable uh, in the weeks and months ahead? And perhaps most importantly, are we reputationally resilient? So are we responding to the external perceptions of our business? Are we really creating trust with our customers and dependability um, with all the different stakeholders in our ecosystem? And I do think trust and dependability are perhaps um, under talked about facets of of what a brand needs to be in this in this environment. So I really would emphasize reputational resilience. And it's important clearly that uh, businesses set out a set of indicators um, that actually allow them to measure against all these different uh, areas of resilience. And so you're talking about what businesses can maybe look at now to strengthen their resilience. Um, do you think there are different or more things businesses should look at in the longer term to ensure they're resilient 
in the, the years to come that maybe we may be looking at for this recovery? Yeah, I mean, I think there's three areas businesses uh, talk about a lot at the moment. I mean, one is clearly technology itself and uh, digitization is perhaps an overused word, but how do we actually put more functions on online, um, which in their own way, by putting them online, they become more resilient. Um, it gives us more and better connectivity also to customers and employees. And though there are risks of this and, and therefore mitigating risks of cyber, et cetera, are really important. Uh, clearly for lots of businesses, uh, investing in digital uh, must be the way forward in this current environment. And then climate sustainability. It was interesting talking to an investor just last week and they talked about investing in the next normal, not the new normal. And what they meant by that was investing in businesses which actually are very, very sustainable um, and actually dovetail with the new environment and are aligned with a sustainable future and not just investing in businesses which have adapted to a new normal, but quite frankly, are doing what they did before. So I do think changing uh, the emphasis on looking at sustainability and aligning a business strategy with sustainability is really important. And then finally, clearly dealing with the returning workforce. And yeah, this is partly around office design. So how do you redesign your real estate and your premises to allow collaboration, um, but also to make it safe for, for our colleagues to return? And uh, there's a number of quite demanding, I think, questions around um, employee health monitoring and, and quite frankly, how to make uh, our colleagues comfortable as they go back into the office or into the factory. Well, indeed, and obviously Deloitte are a large employer too. So what is the, you know, the, the experience of this being like for Deloitte, you know, sort of return to work? Can you sort of share the, the company's journey as an employer as well? Well, I think it'd be fair to say we've had to be agile uh, as um, the emphasis, if you like, from government has changed over time. Um, so we've had to be agile in our response to that. Uh, and clearly, with my Scottish hat on, um, there's been diff different emphasis between Scottish government um, and England in terms of the time and pace, but also in some of the criteria we need to respond to. So agility has been re really important in that journey. I mean, we started by putting 20,000 people uh, out of the office and online. And operationally, that's been hugely successful. And we are very resilient operationally. Uh, to achieve that and actually probably surprised ourselves with how successful that was. Um, we did though recognize as we got to the end of June, early July, that certain aspects of working with clients were not as good online and we did need some different ways of collaborating with clients. Some of that needed to be physical. And we also recognized the health and well-being aspect for certain, I think a minority, but, but a significant minority of our people that uh, we needed some people to return to, to the office in some way. So we did offer open six offices um, in the very early part of July to allow some of that collaboration to occur. Um, we were looking to extend that opening um, in the last week or two, but clearly with the change of emphasis in, in the current uh, 10 days, uh, both uh, in the UK wide, but also from a Scottish government point of view, uh, further office openings are on hold. Um, and we are obviously being very strict about how we use our offices in Scotland particularly, um, but we are going to keep our Edinburgh office open for uh, limited activity um, for the forthcoming weeks and months. So 
I'd say agile and volatile um, and we're being reactive and proactive around making sure we can work with our clients collaboratively uh, but appropriately and we look after our people as best as possible but uh, it's been a, an interesting journey over the last five or six months as you can imagine. Yeah, thanks for that, Stephen. I'm sure a lot of employers will <laughs> relate to what you're saying there about having to be agile and thinking about um, the wider health and well-being of their staff, as well as the advantages that do come from collaboration and in person as well. And it's a difficult balancing act at the moment. Um, so um, really interesting to hear what you said about how businesses can make themselves more resilient. I mean, obviously, government has a role to make the environment as certain as, as it can um, to help businesses through this uncertain time. Um, one of the key schemes we've already discussed is the furlough scheme. Um, we talk about in the commentary the sorts of policy measures that have been put in place and that removing the furlough scheme too early, particularly for sectors like hospitality and tourism, does have some potential to undermine the good work that's been done to date. The new scheme, uh, the job support scheme that was announced last week, is designed to keep the support going, but in a new, a new way. Um, and what we see in the commentary is whilst this is welcome, it's much less generous than the furlough scheme. You know, folk will have to be back working and businesses themselves will have to pick up the majority of the tab. So it's unlikely to support those sectors where um, there's been large amounts of furlough and there isn't likely to be, um, you know, much activity going on. In, um, over the next six months, such as, as hospitality and events and so on. So, so this isn't going to necessarily protect the number of jobs that the furlough scheme has, has helped protect over the last, um, last um, four to five months. However, in addition to that policy announcement last week, um, there was also another policy announcement which shall have significant consequences for devolved policymaking, and that's the cancellation of the UK budget. Um, so just coming to you now, David, um, can you set out for us what the consequences might be of the announcement of the cancellation of the UK budget, what the consequences might be for the Scottish budget? Um, well, I mean, the outlook for the Scottish budget is, is dependent on the UK budget for several reasons. Um, one of those reasons is obviously that um, UK government spending and how that spending is allocated determines the size of the Scottish block grant. Um, but the second really big important thing is that forecasts of revenues raised from taxes in the rest of the UK that are devolved to Scotland do also influence the Scottish budget significantly via um, these things called block grant adjustments. So ideally, you would plan the Scottish budget knowing what your block grant was going to be and knowing what the RUK tax forecasts are and that's why normally what we sort of expect is that the UK budget will come along in in November and the Scottish budget will come along sort of three weeks after that when those key parameters are known. Um, the fact that the UK budget for autumn has been cancelled uh, presumably means that the Scottish government will have to set its budget probably January, February next year with significant uncertainty around some of those parameters. Um, now, having said that, the UK government, I understand, is still saying it's going to have a spending review of some sort this side of Christmas. So in theory, the Scottish government might have a reasonable idea about what its block grant will be. Um, but there's still a huge uncertainty around these block grant adjustments because they are 
well, without knowing what UK government tax policy is, and without the OBR having updated its forecasts of UK tax revenue since March 2020, um, there'll be huge uncertainty about what those UK tax forecasts are, and therefore that feeds through to, to significant uncertainty about um, the Scottish budget. So, well, I mean, there, there's all kinds of layers of complications on top of that. And in fact, there are different sort of agreements and mechanisms in place for the way in which a Scottish budget might subsequently have to change if a UK budget comes along in March, a few weeks after the Scottish budget has been set and changes some of those parameters. And, and those rules in effect sort of protect the Scottish budget against the risk that something might happen at the UK budget afterwards that reduces the size of the Scottish budget, but do enable the Scottish, the Scottish government to take boosts to its budget in year. But th there are kind of layers of complications in that and, and, and those things uh, add, add further complexity. Um, and, it, and it does all raise big questions about scrutiny and about planning if you have to set a budget when you've kind of got an idea about some things uh, but not knowing to what extent your budget might subsequently increase in year or in fact might fall in year, albeit that if it does fall in year, you can punt some of that effect into future years. Yeah, so I mean, there's a, a significant degree of uncertainty over what we call the, the sort of spending envelope, what the total amount that the, the Scottish um, government might have to spend in the next financial year. Um, and, you know, some of the mechanisms that were found perhaps to cope with the same or similar situation last year, um, you know, we didn't have the uncertainties that we have now around COVID and the changes in UK tax revenue. So this, the environment's just much more uncertain than it was even last year. Um, and that was an ideal sort of a situation then. But sort of setting aside, if we can, that really uncertain environment over the total amount that might, there might be to spend, what are the kind of other sort of known pressures, I suppose, that might exist on the Scottish budget? Well, I think there'll be even more competing uh, pressures on the budget than the normal. Um, the, the virus is, of course, unlikely to have gone away by early 2021 when the budget has been set. So there'll be a, a need for elevated spending on health and social care for a, for, for a while. The labour market will almost certainly remain uh, weak. That will increase demand for spending on higher education and further education. It will increase the, the need for spending on, on all kinds of training and employability initiatives. Household incomes will remain weak, so there'll be a need for higher spending on things like council tax reduction and potentially additional support to the worst affected or most vulnerable household groups. And of course, local authorities and transport operators will still be facing big income shortfalls as a result of the restrictions and some places geographically will be you know uh, really facing a hard time whether that's city centers or or or, or tourist um tourist uh, spots so uh, huge pressures on on the budget and all of that obviously is overlaid with with uncertainty not only about how much resource the scottish government might have but actually how the the virus might um, progress during 2021 and therefore what that might mean for further restrictions or relaxing of restrictions in 2021. So 
um, well, I mean, governments are often criticized for setting budgets without kind of doing much strategic thinking and just kind of incrementing things each year. Um, and, and now is really the time when, when, when strategic planning, strategic budget planning is needed. Um, and it's maybe therefore slightly unfortunate that it, that it coincides with um, an election year with the budget being set just before the election. Um, on the other hand, uh, maybe that won't make too much difference in the scheme of things. But the overall uncertainty that you've talked about, about how much there might be to spend um, and all of the um, pressures which might increase or how we don't know quite how they'll evolve. How does all of this uncertainty, think, do you think, feed into the, the plans for the, uh, the spending plans that different parties might set out for the upcoming Scottish election? Um, well, I mean, I certainly don't envy people who are tasked with writing manifestos uh, at the moment. I suppose a cynic would, would probably say that, that, that manifestos tend to be quite light on the specifics of specific spending plans anyway, uh, in, in normal times. Um, and, and particularly, I think, in the, in the Scottish case, given that ultimately the budget envelope is, is determined largely by Westminster rather than by, by, by something that the, but the Scottish parties themselves can control. Um, and instead, you know, we, we, the manifestos are, tend to be much more about vision and priorities and principles and so on. Um, so I, I don't imagine that we'll really see that much in the way of specific numbers on spending and so on. Uh, but, but in that sense, maybe, maybe the manifestos won't actually themselves look all that different from, from normal anyway, because arguably they don't tend to have much of that, that detail uh, anyway. And, 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 and if there was a, a case for for lacking some of that detail, then then the current environment is 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 probably it. Yeah, thanks for that, David. That's probably fair. Um, and I suppose sort of setting aside the fact it is an election year and the challenges that some of the uncertainty causes for parties thinking about their spending plans. What is clear is that as the budgetary processes at Westminster and Holyrood, like it or not, become more entwined as due to greater fiscal devolution and the more complicated fiscal arrangements. Um, it's fairly clear that the UK government does need to have a greater appreciation of the impact that some of these decisions like cancelling the budget can have on, on devolved policy making. Definitely. Yeah. So thanks for that, David. So alongside our commentary this time, we're actually putting out um, as articles the four winning essays from our Economic Futures essay competition, which discuss the pandemic um, and its impact on um, inequality, the environment, on universities and on gender equality. Um, the quality of the almost 100 entries we received for this competition were absolutely ex exceptional and they're a really interesting read, so I'd recommend that you go and have a look at them. So um, I'd like to thank Adam, Steve and David for joining me today for a really interesting discussion. Um, if you want to read more about the commentary or any of our other analysis on the Scottish economy, then head to fraseravander.org where all of our publications are and all of our articles are. Um, you can subscribe to our podcast on all the usual podcast um, platforms. Um, so thanks for joining us today and we'll see you again soon for the next Fraser Vander podcast. <laughs>